Job 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends, because you have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. We have a spread of children. We have all our badges. Uh, We have a spread from 13 to 1. And so we have our hands full and our diaries full, almost to capacity as well, week by week. But one of the things we've enjoyed doing with Kimberly's arrival at the whopping age of one that she finds herself is getting out the old Dorling Kinsley books, the DK books as they're known. You know these books. If you don't own them, you'll see them in the library. They're the hard, chunky books with about eight or ten pages. They cost a remarkable amount of money for the amount of pages they have, but they're thick, chunky card books. And on every page, they have simple objects. So they have an orange page and a red page and a green page and a black page. And on the black page, there is a dog. And uh, Kimberly is uncertain and unsure about dogs. But when it comes to the orange, she mumbles or skips over it. The green page, well, there's an apple. The red page, there's a football, because it's Liverpool, not Everton. (laughs) But let's move on to the black page. And on the black page, it has a dog. And when it comes to the dog, she's beginning to get a bit of a woof. Um, An identification that here we have an animal that we see around town, and uh, it's called a woof. We work on dog later on. But... When she sees a dog in real life, it's an altogether different story. She's intrigued, so she kind of goes close, and then she recoils quickly to mum or dad's breast. Just, I want to escape. I'm not sure what this foreign object, animal, whatever it may be, but I'm scared of it, and I want to go to a place of safety. I tell you that, of course, because, not that I'm sponsored by Doreen Kinsley, but we're have begun a series last week about drawing near to God, what it means to draw near to God. Last week, we looked at a character called Jacob, and this week, we're looking at a character called Job. As we see, I don't know what you imagine, what it means to draw near to God. If you look at the religions of the world, perhaps top left-hand corner, you might think that would happen through meditation. 
If you have a focal point, perhaps from within yourself, perhaps it's a focal point in a temple of a different shape or size or color, that's how and where you can find God. You might think closer to home. Actually, I prefer stained glass windows when I go to a holy place, when I go to a cathedral, when I go to a church, the High Church of England, certainly not in Stanford Green because it's just blue curtains and uh, children's leftover sandwiches. But when I go to these places, that's where I can draw near to God. But as we saw last week from Jacob, it's one thing to say you want to draw near to God. It's another thing to actually experience it. Biblically, when people draw near to God, or more accurately, when God comes close to them, it's not a cozy experience. It's not a comfortable experience. Last week, Jacob wrestled with God. It was physically hard work, Genesis 32. And today, when God comes close to Job, it's equal, if not even more, uncomfortable. It's all the difference in the world, you see, between thinking you know who God is and then experiencing him himself. And so it takes daring. It's unsafe. But it's always worth it. What do we learn from the book of Job? Well, the book of Job is big, and it's kind of like one of these. If you've uh, got one of the sheets, perhaps you can use this as a little bit of inspiration. But, but here we have an example and a description of what the book of Job is like. It's like a Big Mac or it's like a sandwich from Pret-a-Manger or M&S, wherever you choose to uh, buy your sandwiches these days, or even make them. There's a thought. Now, it's got 42 chapters, the book of Job, and it begins and ends with narrative. But in the middle, there's a huge amount of good stuff. It's poetic, it's poetry. And Job takes counsel from different people. His wife, we meet her in chapter 2. His friends, we spend a lot of time meeting them in chapters 3, right the way through to about chapter 37. But right at the beginning of the book of Job, we meet the character himself. You might want to flick to chapter 1 and just check to see if what I'm saying is true. In the opening uh, chapter of the book of Job, we meet him. He's a wealthy man. He's a righteous man. He's a God-fearing man. He is a man who's very, very wealthy. And in verse 3, we read this sentence, Job 1.3. Job was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. He had a large family. He had thousands of heads of cattle. He had it all. He had so much dosh, you could say. His estate was so significant that his, his adult sons, his kids, they planned on a rotation schedule who would have a feast, who would have a massive party. And it was just an endless party, living off dad's hard-earned cash and wealth. They had it all. That's the first five verses. By the time you get to verse 6, chapter 1, 6, and the following verses, we go from, we go from earth to a heavenly conversation that a lot of people find very difficult to understand what's going on. Why would it happen? From everyday reality, you go from earth to the heavenly realm and a conversation between Satan and God. The angels come to God and they speak. It's, it's a window, one of the rare windows we've got in the whole Bible into the reality of a spiritual realm. It shows God's authority. And here, Satan comes to the devil and he says, I want to do this. I want to test Job, so that he might fail. God never does that. He puts us through trials so that we, must, we might succeed. But God wants us to fail, and so he puts us through tests. And he comes to God, he comes to the Almighty and says, I want to test Job, your servant. And God says, you can't do that, but I'll let you do that. And he says it twice, because God has all authority, he's almighty, he's all-powerful, and he's good and he's wise and he's kind. 
And Satan says, I want to do this to your servant Job. God says, you can't do that, but I'll let you do that. And by the time we get to verses 13 to verse 19 of chapter 1, just like one of Frank's slide, tragedy hits Job. The four servants come and they tell him very quickly, all your cattle have died. And so have most of your servants. I was the only one who escaped. Lightning has come down and destroyed all your sheep. And camels have gone as well. He's lost his bank balance. His ISA has dissipated. His retirement fund is gone. He's lost the lot. He had it all. And now he has very, very little. Verse 18 and 19 of chapter 1. I was in the home where all your children were feasting together. And a wind came out of the desert And the house collapsed, and all of your children are dead, all ten, seven sons and three daughters. And I alone have escaped to tell you these things. He had it all. He lost it all. And how does he respond? It's remarkable. Look at verse 21 of chapter 1. It's on the screen. Naked I came, and naked I shall return. The Lord has given, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now the book could end there. And we would have learned a lot about uh, Job's fortitude, about the fact that God is in control, and that God and his wisdom sometimes allow hard things to come into our lives. But that's not where the story ends. There's loads more. Look at chapter 2. In chapter 2, Satan comes a second time and says to God, I want to do this to your servant Job. And God says, no, you cannot do that, but I'll let you do this. Because God is good and he's sovereign and he's in control. But then what happens next is too much for Job. Now, it's like a horrible history book. If you're on a sheet, if you're one of the teenagers here, if you're on a sheet, it's like a horrible history book that you could read sometime after you've eaten, not before. If you read chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, what you read is terrible physical affliction for Job. He's covered from head to toe with sores and boils. He sat in an ash heap and he takes up a stone and starts to kind of knock the heads off his spots and scabs. It's absolutely horrible unless you're into that kind of gross narrative. But it's horrible and painful and Job is at the end of himself. First test, he was okay. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. But the second test when it comes, it's too much for him. And it gets worse when his friends and his wife start to speak up into the situation. Wouldn't it be better, Job 2.9 says his wife, if you just curse God and died? <laughs> Great counsel from your wife. Wouldn't it be better if you just curse God and gave up? And then his friends get involved. In chapter 3 through 37, this large section of the book that's poetic When they just say, see, God has left you. You must have done something wrong. God would never treat you like that if he exists. He's a figment of your imagination. And through this big section, this this big section of the sandwich, the filling, these themes appear. Chapter 3, verse 3. I curse the day I was born. Job is listening to his his wife's advice. He's feeling it. Chapter 3, verse 11. It's the same thing. I curse the day. I curse the day that I was even born. And he struggles in these chapters as well. You can read it sometime over a very big cup of tea or coffee. It will take you that long. He struggles with injustice. He's saying, God, if you're there, I'm innocent. Were you having an off day when you decided to give me this hand? I am an innocent sufferer. I don't deserve this. I've not earned it. My life has come to an end. 
You can summarize it in uh, Job 23. He feels that God isn't there. In Job 23, um, he's railing at God. He's kind of shaking his fist at the heavens. And he says, if only I knew where to find him. Where's God? If only I could go to his dwelling. I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I will find out what he would answer me and consider what he would say. He's raging at God. I'm innocent. I don't deserve this. I wish I'd never been born. My wife was right, but he's not cursing God. It's very interesting. And then in chapter 38, God appears. And after all this bad counsel from his wife and from his friends, friends like that, who needs enemies, you could say? God appears in the storm. God turns up in a whirlwind. And God speaks. And this, I think, is where most people have their biggest problem with the book. Because it's very interesting, if you read from chapters 38 to 41, what does God say and what does God not say? God gives no explanations at all for the suffering he has allowed to come into Job's life. It appears that God gives absolutely no explanation for what has happened, and it appears as if he's going to offer no comfort either for what has happened in Job's life. And just when you're expecting, give the guy a break, God goes after Job. God goes after him with a series of questions that are in no way passive-aggressive, but they certainly are confrontational. Job 38.4, Job, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Where were you when I gave the orders in the morning? And set the dawn in its place. Surely you were there. Where were you when I set the doors and bars on the vast oceans and said to them, go here but not there? Job, did the lightning bolts respond to you? Job, were you there in the storehouses of heaven when the snow falls? Job, were you there? Do you know more than me? Are you really innocent? God goes after Job. And that's where most people struggle. Chapter 40. You say I'm unjust. Try your own own hand at justice, Job. And then Job responds. Job 40, verse 4. 40, verse 4. I cover my mouth. I have nothing to say. I don't know how to answer you. No explanation from God. No apparent comfort. And yet this is the most flabbergasting thing in the book. When we get to our chapter, chapter 42, verses 1 to 10, Job isn't angry anymore. Job isn't full of self-pity, as most men are, including me. What does Job say? Verse 5, My ears have heard about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Verse 3, chapter 42, You asked, Who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. All this turbulence in Job's heart, I wish I'd died. All the temptation to listen to his wife and his friends, I'm going to curse you, but he did not curse God all through the whole book, through everything. Job and his anger, it subsides. Job and his temptation to be proud has been humbled. 
And Job is satisfied in these verses. It's hard to read. And then look at how the story ends, verse 10. God made Job prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. So what do we learn? As we did last week, that's the quick flyby. Now we go slow, and we will be looking at chapter 42 more carefully. How do we understand suffering? People go to Job for the the blueprint of how to, under suffer, how to understand or get a grid of reference to understand suffering when it's sent into our lives. Here are three things. Number one, when suffering comes into your life, and even before, Job teaches us to listen. To listen for understanding. Kids, you've got an ear. It's there just to be a visual reminder. Listen for understanding. When suffering comes into your life, and even before, the one thing that we need to do is always to listen for understanding, to, to prime the pump, to get ourselves ready for when we do suffer, if we're not already in it today. Look at what verse 3 says. God says to Job, his servant, don't obscure my counsel with knowledge. Now, here's an adult sentence. Here's adult medicine. Here's a non-sugar-coated truth that we need to hear. There's no neutrality in your life, the book of Job teaches us. Either you are competent and able to see everything that God sees so that you can judge in the way that he judges, or you're not. That's why God goes after Job in chapters 38 to 41. Here is Job who's raging at God. I wish I'd never been born. I would do a better job at justice than you can. Where were you when this happened in my life? He doesn't understand and he's raging at God. And that is completely appropriate. Read the Psalms. But where does God in his grace and pursuing grace lead Job to? To verse 3. Don't obscure counsel without knowledge. Who is superior, Job? Are you superior to me or am I superior to you? There's no middle ground. Who's in the dog? You see, there's a choice here. Job's friends in the middle of the book say, here are the two options for suffering. Here are, two op uh, here are the two options you can choose from. Either God is to blame or you're to blame. Those are the two options. And by the time we get to the end of the book, it's kind of framed in a different way. When it comes to suffering, we face ourselves with a choice. Do we think we know better than God or does God know better than us? Who's in the dock? There's a beautiful sense to verse 3 that as difficult and as hard it is to swallow, and I'm awful at swallowing tablets. You could have seen me earlier as I popped a paracetamol. It took me a long time. C.S. Lewis put it like this. The ancients, anything pre-enlightenment, the ancients, they always put us in the dock and God was on the throne. But we've done the opposite. We, in our arrogance and pride, think that we know more than God, so God is in the dock, he needs to justify himself, and we have all the knowledge we need to prosecute him. And we need to be consistent, teaches the book of Job. Were you there when the storehouses of heaven were made? Were you there when I built the foundations of the earth? Were you there when I called out the big sea creatures from the waters? Were you there? Do you know it all? And it's so tempting, isn't it, when you suffer, when you lose a loved one, when you're on a missions trip overseas, when you see real pain, not inconvenience, not a loss of comfort, but suffering, when you see that, when you experience that, we're tempted to say, God, why is this happening? 
and that's completely right. But it's the next step that is important. Someone has said, I think it was Tim Keller, he says most things that are helpful. If you could see everything that God sees, you would not question one of his decisions. God has the ultimate wide-angled lens. But we want to put God in the dock, and we want him to justify himself. And sometimes his answers, says Job, are too wonderful for you. They're too big for you. They're too grand for you. And you will never understand that God is good, and he is kind, and he is sovereign. Verse 3. Who obscures my counsel, my wisdom, without sufficient knowledge, without divine knowledge, you could say? When suffering comes, the first thing you need to do is listen. Listen for God's wisdom. Here's the second thing. It's like grabbing hold of a hand. You've got to grasp hold of your status. You've got to grasp hold of your status. I think Job teaches us that. This is the quick one. Look at chapter 1, verse 8. When we meet Job, uh, God says to Satan, Have you seen my servant Job? It's kind of a throwaway comment that's very significant. Have you seen my servant Job? There's none like him in all the earth. He fears God and he shuns evil. And then there's this question that we didn't read, chapter 1, verse 9, that's very troubling. Satan asked God, does Job, 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 excuse me, does Job serve God for nothing? What does he get out of it? Does Job serve God for nothing? Does Job serve God for nought? you could say? And then Satan says, I'm going to go and attack him. And then you'll see that Job will curse you to your face. And he doesn't. And look at verse 4 to 10 in chapter 42 as we get to the end of the book. That's the way suffering begins. I'm going to tempt your servant so that he might fail, and he's going to curse you, says Satan. And look at how the book ends. Look at how many times, verses 4 to 10, in particular verses 8 to 10, that you hear this refrain, my servant Job. Do you notice it? Four times. My servant Job, my servant Job, my servant Job. Here has been on display in the theatre of Job's life. God's goodness and his grace in pursuing him as he speaks to him, 38 to 41. But what has God done in Job's life? God has defeated evil through the life of his servant. He's displayed it because in chapter 42 you see, I heard about you but now I've seen you. I've restored to you your fortunes and I've doubled it. Satan, you wanted to defeat me by uh, trying to catch out and test my servant Job, but you've not done it. He's made his servant into more of a servant. He's humbled him in the most difficult of circumstances. He's humbled him, he's brought him low, and he's blessed him doubly so. Until suffering comes, none of us realize that actually, I think, We are trying to get God to be our servant rather than us serving him. Every piece of suffering, every experience of difficulty and suffering is about servanthood. It's about reminding us who we are. We want, our default position is to to want and to control God and use him to meet our agenda. And often, so often, suffering is there to realign our priorities so that we always follow him. He's the master, we're the servant, not the other way around. And every piece of suffering in Job's life defeats Satan by getting us to the place and him to the place where we don't question him anymore. 
My ears have heard about you, but now I've seen you. Not once, with all the questioning, with all the suffering, with all the great challenges, does Job question, or rather, does he cross God? Does he curse him? You've got to remember your status when you're suffering, that God is good, remember his character, that God is in control, God is sovereign over all, we can see things that you can't, which does not take away the pain, the tears, the difficulty. But sometimes you won't see the purpose of God's plans. But let's remember that he is the master and we're the servant. Here's the third thing, final thing, quick thing. Look beyond. Get some spectacles on. See clearly. Here's the last thing. Look at verses 7 and following of chapter 42. What does God ask Job to do? Verse 7 and following. Now, Job, I want you to intercede for the people around you. His three mates are there that have been no help at all. And he says, I want you to intercede for them. You can see it clearly in verse 10, after Joab prayed for his friends. I want you to intercede for them. I know they don't deserve it. I know you think that you're an innocent sufferer. But in these verses, as we so often do at the end of a sermon, we see a clear picture of Jesus. Job thought he... Job thought God had left him, but he hadn't. Job thought that he was innocent, but he wasn't. Job thought he'd been cut off from God, but he hadn't. And here we see verse 7. You have not spoken what is right. My servant Job has, and so my servant Job will pray for you, and I will hear his prayer. Now, who does that remind you of? Who's the one who prays interceding for his people? Who was not kind of cut off but was ultimately cut off from his father? Who was not kind of innocent but was the innocent one? It's Jesus again. Jesus in the Old Testament. He's the one who was really cut off from God. He's the one who was really innocent. He's the one who wasn't bound by his feelings but said, not my will but yours. And then right at the end in verse 7, it says, my servant Job did the right thing. He had very, very, very many tough days. But not once did he curse God. Not once did he accuse God of doing him ill. He understood his character, even when he's kind of saying, why? He was always trying to get God in the midst of suffering. Didn't turn his back on him. Friends, when you are suffering, try and listen for understanding. Why is this happening? Wrestle for God's character. Try and grasp your status. I am not in control. You are. I'm tempted to forget your character. I don't want to. Please remind me. But look beyond. Look beyond to the one to whom Job always points to. And here's the reality. This remarkable passage at the end of Job, the whole book, this last bit of the sandwich, Job, Job knew enough of God's character to persevere and say, Now my eyes have seen you. But we know so much more, don't we? We've seen Jesus. We have the whole Bible. And in the page of the Bible, we can see him. And yet so often we struggle with suffering even more than Job did. Job got enough and he was satisfied. He never stopped praying. He never stopped pushing forward to God. And neither should we. John Newton wrote wrote the words of one of my favorite hymns. It's an old one. And at the end of this Jobian song, I ask the Lord that I might grow. He says this, These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may seek your all in me. 
I don't want to suffer like Job did. I certainly don't want to suffer like Jesus did. And yet Jesus made God suffer. Not so that we might suffer, but that in our suffering we might become like him. And that's what Job so powerfully reminds us of. Let's pray.